When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, your hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now that and they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you also have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Matthew, I'm just going to try this one. Apparently, it's actually somebody's hearing aid. So, that's not mine. Okay. okay, let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you our Father because of this prayer. Lord God, because you answered this prayer of Christ. 
we ask now, Lord, that you would attend to our prayers, to this prayer, in the name of Christ. Lord Jesus, we want to see you exalted. We want to see your name magnified. Lord, would you do that? Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your power to be able to do what I could never do, to proclaim your glories. And Lord, that you would help us all to behold the face of Christ. And as we behold Christ, that we would see you, Heavenly Father. And Lord, that we would be changed by this. Lord, exalt yourself, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, we're now coming to a particularly precious passage of Scripture. And although the whole Bible is precious, here we get to listen in as Jesus is about to face the most horrific experience that anyone has ever faced. A.W. Pink declares that in this wonderful prayer, there is a solemnity and elevation of thought, a condensed power of expression and a comprehensiveness of meaning which have affected the minds and drawn up the hearts of those most devoted children of God's children to a degree that few portions of Scripture have done. Jesus has finished his farewell discourse from from chapters 13 to 16 and and in his final which was his final message to to his disciples disciples before going to Gethsemane and going to the cross he had said what he needed to say to them and now he's going to talk to his father he's going to pray John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer, and here Jesus fulfills his priestly role of interceding before the people of God, before the heavenly throne. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9, we read that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, beloved, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. All the priests that came before under the old covenant pointed to Jesus Christ in his role as our high priest where he intercedes for us. Now most high priests, every other high priest, had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, but Jesus Christ was a high priest without sin. He was the archetypical high priest. And not only was he our high priest, but he is also the sacrifice. He is the lamb who was slain. His was the blood that all those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. And Jesus Christ is also the altar on which those sacrifices are made. Everything in the Old Covenant pointed to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And so here, as these events are about to take place, As Jesus is about to go to the cross, he prayed for us. And he continues to pray for us. His is an eternal priesthood. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him 
to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So just as Jesus interceded back then, he continues to intercede for us at this very moment. At this very moment, beloved, Jesus is interceding for you and for me as this sermon is preached. So we pray that that this word would have its perfect effect, that the Lord would do what he wants to do in our hearts, and we know that he will do what he wants to do in our hearts through his proclaimed word, because his word cannot return void, but will accomplish that which God has ordained it to accomplish. This is true every bit as much for us as disciples of Christ today as it was for those first disciples that Jesus prayed for on his way to Gethsemane. It's been true throughout the history of the church that Jesus has prayed for us. He's prayed for us. The Scottish reformer John Knox credited this chapter as being used of God to bring about his salvation. He said that he cast the anchor of his faith on John 17. And on his deathbed, he had this passage read to him again and again because he said that he found comfort here in this passage as he saw that the counsel of God is stable and his love immutable towards his elect received by him in protection and safeguard. And so, beloved, this is the theme of John 17 as we see the Lord's providential care for the elect, for his church, as he prays for salvation, for preservation, for sanctification, for unification in the church, and ultimately for union with himself. And so this week, I'm going to focus on the first 10 verses, on the first request as Jesus prays for salvation. As Jesus prays for salvation. And next we'll see that his second request for preservation in verses 11 to 16. We'll see that next week. And also next week we'll see his prayer for sanctification in verses 17 to 19. This is all Lord willing, of course. And then Lord willing, the following week we'll look at the fourth and fifth request for unity between Christians and for union with Christ. But this morning, I want, to see, I want us to see that from, from verses 1 to 10, that Jesus is praying for salvation. He's praying for salvation. So as Jesus is there preparing to go to Gethsemane, this, is, this prayer is not recorded in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. Only, only John makes this, includes this prayer. But as Jesus prays here, what is the first thing that he prays for? He prays for himself. He prays for himself. Now, Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated absolute selflessness, absolute perfect selflessness, and he continues to display that selflessness here by praying for himself. As he asks the Father to glorify him, This is his focus here in verses 1 to 5. And as we'll see by praying in this way, for himself in this way, Jesus is actually praying for others because his glorification is necessary for our salvation. 
He continues to pray specifically for his disciples in verses 6 to 19 and then to pray for the church in verses 20 to 26. But here, in these first five verses, his focus is on his glorification. And so he lifts his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour had come. This was the hour of his humiliation, but it was also the hour of his exaltation. This was the hour of his affliction, but it's also the hour of his exaltation. There is a, an appointed time for every single event that takes place in God's providential rule of the universe. But this is eminently true in the life of Jesus. This was the appointed time. No harm was to be able to come to Jesus until the appointed time, and that time was upon him. And Jesus announced that moment in John 12, 23, before the crowds, where he, where he said, The hour has come for the Son to be glorified. And he was distressed, and he told them, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so we have here at the end of this gospel account that is expressly written for the purpose of glorifying Christ, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 31. Again, we see the relationship of the Father and the Son take center stage. The Son is praying to the Father, asking Him to glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify Him. Jesus here is not asking merely for Himself. His ultimate desire is that He is glorified so that the Father will be glorified through Him. The reflection of the Son is a reflection in that way of the glory of the Father. As we'll see here, this glorification comes through salvation of the elect. To glory means to praise or to honor or to extol. And here in this context, Jesus is referring to the cross, but also to his resurrection. He'd already referred to his death as his glorification in John 13, when he said in verses 31 and 32, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And that Jesus went on to speak of his departure. Jesus glorified the Father with every single moment of his life. But he knows what's coming. He knows how hard it's going to be. He knows that he is going to be tempted beyond what any of us could ever imagine. He knows that he, the holy God, is about to be the sin bearer. He knows that he, God the Son, is going to bear his father's wrath. And he knows that his father is going to forsake him. 
And the temptation is going to be so powerful that in Gethsemane, he's going to ask three times that if it be possible that the Lord would remove this cup from him, that if there is any other way, let it be so. In his humanity, Jesus was going to suffer intimately the temptation to abandon his mission. And if he fails, all is lost. Everything is lost. If he fails, everyone is lost. If he fails, there can be no salvation for anyone ever. But he must not fail. He cannot fail. So he prays. He prays that he'll be glorified. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, Paul exalts Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, just consider how Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is exalted in his humility. Even for God to take on human flesh is inconceivable self-abasement. For God to take on human flesh, it's inconceivable self-abasement. For you to make yourself an ant doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what happened here. The infinite God took on finite, fallible human flesh. But he didn't stop there. We might have expected him to come as a king, but he didn't come as, as a king. He came as a servant. He came as a slave, obedient all the way to the horror of the cross. Leon Morris explains that as Jesus came in lowliness, we have an example of the paradox that, that John uses so forcefully later in the gospel. That the true glory is seen not in outward splendor, but in the lowliness with which the Son of God lived for men and suffered for them. The cross was considered so shameful, so shameful, that this Roman form of execution, it was considered so shameful that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was considered so shameful that women could not be crucified. This was the stumbling block of the Jews. Because every man who is, is hung on a tree is cursed. The physical torture, the physical shame of the cross was bad enough, but Jesus bore the, bore the sin he bore the curse for God's people. Jesus did become a curse. He was cursed when he hung on that cross. As the Father poured out his wrath on him, as the Father forsook him for us in our place. 
And so the cross is the culmination of the redemptive work of Christ. It is the climax of his redemptive work. For it is on the cross that his attributes are displayed most powerfully. There, as Christ hung on the cross, we see the Son's perfect obedience to the Father. We see his supreme love for the elect, and we see his power even over death. And so this glorification of Jesus is our salvation. Jesus here grounds his request for glorification in the fact that the Father has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all of those that the Father had given him. Through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus confers eternal life on all of those that the Father has given him. Now Jesus uses... This, this phrase referring to the, those that the Father has given him six times in this one prayer. Now, election is one of the key themes in John's gospel. Salvation is grounded entirely on sovereign election. Salvation does not come, apart, come about through man's will, but from God's will. Children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 Salvation is monergistic. God does it all. It's his will and his work. Jesus taught in John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. And verse 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we receive the gift of salvation as the Father's gift to his, bri to his bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. So here we see that Jesus has received the authority to save the elect. We see also in Matthew 28 that this is the, this is the ground of the Great Commission. He says in Matthew 28:18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Because of that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the authority for salvation belongs to Jesus. And salvation was his mission. He defines eternal life in verse 3 as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. Eternal life means knowing the Father and knowing the Son. It means that God is glorified before the eyes of our hearts. And beloved, knowing God is the greatest blessing of our salvation. If you're in Christ, you've already received a foretaste of this in, in this life. 
But this is our hope, that one day we will know God without the encumbrance of sin. We will see God as he is in all of his glory without being tempted by, by fleshy distractions and limitations. And we will know him for all eternity. Knowing God and worshiping forever, him forever is the greatest blessing. I confess that, that at times, in, in early in my, in, maybe not early, maybe midway in my Christian walk, I, I, I thought that, that heaven would be boring. I, I thought it was, it was sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. I had no idea. I had no idea of the glory of Christ in salvation. And I became convicted of this. And I became convicted of of the fact that I was living for this life. That I was not living for the the, the glory of knowing God. And I asked the Lord to impress his glory on my heart. To give him, give me a taste of him. To cause me to, to rejoice in him and in the knowledge of him. What do you think he did? He answered that prayer. He answered that prayer in such a way that that I feel like I'm just, I've talked about this before, but I feel like I'm getting just a glimpse of this. But I want more. The more that I want to, to, the more that I know God, the more that I want to know God. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Then confess your lack of desire for knowing him. Ask his forgiveness and trust that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Beloved, he will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. This is why Jesus came, that we could know him. That as sinners, we could come into his holy presence and worship forevermore. this your prayer. Jesus says in verse 4 that he glorified the Father on earth. He accomplished the work that he had been given to do. With his every single action, he loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Now, of course, this would be accomplished fully on the cross when he said, it is finished. But Jesus' mission was to glorify God so that we would want to come to him through his work in our hearts. So he asks again in verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, John had declared at the outset of his gospel account that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14. When the Shekinah glory descended on on the tabernacle and filled it, people knew that God was with them. Jesus 
is our Emmanuel. Jesus is our God with us. And so here he's requesting a return to that state, that he would be glorified in his resurrection and his his exaltation to that former estate. That he would be glorified back to the Father's side. And the Father granted that request because he is now at the Father's side interceding for us. And it will be fully completed. It will be fully fulfilled at the return of Jesus. Earlier I quoted Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Verses 9 to 11 go on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you bowing your knee to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords? Every knee will bow when Jesus comes in his glory. For some it will be with tears of joy as they welcome their Savior. But for others it will be an abject terror as they await the final judgment that is upon them. But Jesus came for salvation. And so he continues in verse 6 to demonstrate just how he glorified the Father in this. He says that he manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now here he is referring specifically to the disciples, to the the apostles, to the eleven, that that small band of men that were given to him by the Father for the express purpose of laying the foundation of the church. The Father had given them to Jesus out of the world. He had chosen them specifically. They had at one time been part of that which was in, in rebellion. They were chosen out of the world. They were part of those who were in active rebellion against God, but God elected them in love. The Canon of Dort defines election as God's unchangeable purpose by which he, before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, chose God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from the original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. God did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be their mediator the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. It wasn't that God foresaw their choosing of him, because as we already saw, the only reason that they could come was because the Father had called them and had given them. It wasn't that God foresaw their their potential because all of the power that they had to do any good work would also come as a gift from God. 
They belonged to the Father, and the Father gave them to the Son. And they kept God's word. They would remain. Now, very shortly, they would all have their moment of doubt. They would all desert Jesus. But unlike Judas, they would return. They would return because of the prayer that Jesus prays in the next verses. But first in verses 7 and 8, Jesus Jesus reveals how he taught them perfectly. He is the consummate rabbi, and they would prove to be good students. He had demonstrated that all of his authority had come from the Father, and the disciples knew it. He gave them the words from the Father, and they received those words. They understood that the Father had sent the Son, that the Son had come from the Father. And the power of the Holy Spirit, they received these things. They understood these things. They would understand these things after his return. But Jesus here in verse 9 makes it very clear who he isn't praying for. He isn't praying for the world. He's praying for those that he's sending into the world. He's praying, as we'll see next week, for their preservation and for their sanctification. And so God is glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in the disciples as they remain steadfast. As they stand up for truth and for righteousness against their own persecution. That comes first from the Jews and then from the Romans. And it's continued to this day as the world continues to persecute Christians just as the world persecuted Christ. The world hates Christians because the world hates Christ. So when the disciples stood firm in the midst of this, when each of them, we, we believe, was, was martyred apart from John who was exiled on Patmos. When each of them was, was killed in, in horrific ways. But refused to walk away from Christ. Remember, we, we looked a few weeks ago at, at the way that, that the Holy Spirit enabled, enables us to be martyrs. In both senses of the word, as I explained then, that, that to be a martyr originally that in the Greek, it means to bear witness. But because the, those who bore witness to Christ were so horribly persecuted, the term became synonymous with being killed for following Jesus. So as those disciples stood firm, they glorified Jesus. And here, as I said, this this focus in these verses down to verse 10 is is on the disciples. Rather, Rather, down to verse 19 is on the disciples. But beloved, we are beneficiaries of this prayer too. We're beneficiaries in the sense that it was through the ministry of the apostles that the church was founded. It was through the ministry of the apostles that the scriptures were recorded. And so in that sense, we are beneficiaries of this prayer. 
But we are also beneficiaries of this prayer because Jesus was praying not just for them, but also for the church. Look down at verse 20. We are those to whom Jesus refers when he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So although that prayer was primarily for the disciples, it shows the way that that Jesus interceded for them and continues to intercede for us. That the prayer that brought salvation for those first disciples also brings salvation for us. Matthew Henry says that Jesus prays for all that should believe on him, from verse 20, and that it not only refers to the petitions that follow, but also to those which went before, that must be construed to extend to all believers in every place and every age. So as you go through your daily life, as you live your life before God and before a watching world, consider, call to mind the fact that Jesus prayed this for you, that Jesus prayed for your salvation. And that he is continuing to pray for your salvation. Because he who calls you is faithful. He will achieve it. Think about the way that your life would look different. If you kept always in the front of your mind the fact that Jesus is interceding for you, for your salvation. Think about the boldness that you would have in proclaiming the gospel. Think about the confidence that you would have in the face of adversity. Think of the joy that you would have in the midst of trials. Think of the peace that you would have in the midst of persecution. Think of the faith that you would have in the midst of doubt. These are all things that Jesus prays for us. So by his grace and for his glory, lay hold of this prayer because any prayer of Jesus is a promise for us. Any prayer of Jesus is a promise for us as he intercedes before the throne on our behalf. So as you enter into a new week, as you enter into a new year, strive by the grace of God to keep these things ever in the front of your mind. To confess where you fall short. And to plead the blood of Christ has taken away your sins.
to go to Jesus, your great high priest, who is still interceding for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you, Lord, that he fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. That he took away our sin so that we can be counted righteous. Lord, I pray that you would impress these glorious promises onto our hearts. Lord, we know that that many of us have, have experienced a taste of this as we hope in Christ. But Lord, I pray that you would fill our cup to overflowing with the knowledge of these things. Lord, that you would cause us to be so enthralled with Christ and his glory. Lord, that we would be like those who've gone before, that we'd be like Moses, who when he came away from your presence, his face shone. Lord, make our faces shine as we behold your glory so that others would see and others would would know that you are the only Savior. This would result in even more glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.